0: Welcome to Mike's Notes, episode 39. Today, what is Howard Marx's Most Important Thing? The first book that I finished in October 2016 was The Most Important Thing by Howard Marx. And I had been aware of this book for a while and I had taken notes on interviews Marx had done, but I had never read the book, even though it had been suggested, and it popped up in my Twitter feed, and people had mentioned it in various other places. But I finally got the book, and I finally read it, and it was really good. Um, A lot of the times I think of books as how much value they have on a per-word basis. And this book was really valuable. Other books that I found that true for this year have been uh, Sebastian Younger's Tribes, Um, even Grit by Angela Duckworth was really good on a per-word basis. Right now I'm also reading Ever Since Darwin by Stephen Jay Gould and that book is less good on a per-word basis. It just doesn't have the same efficiency that a book like Marx's uh, book does. And what I liked about Marx's book is right from the beginning he addresses this idea of the most important thing. This is what he writes. Successful investing requires thoughtful attention to many separate aspects. All at the same time that's in the third paragraph from the introduction so right out front he lays it out that um, this thing that we call successful investing whether it's with money or time or uh, assets like uh, football players if you run a football team and he compares it to being like bricks in a wall this is what he says that is why I have built this book around the idea of the most important things each is a brick and what I hope will be a solid wall and none is indispensable So right from the start, Marx introduces us to the idea of many important things, and in the book he outlines a number of them, each with its own chapter and each addressing some different lessons that he had learned from investing. So of these 18 most important things, there's only five big areas that I wanted to look at today, five things that I thought were easily applicable to areas beyond financial investing that Marx is in. And uh, the first one is that it's not easy to make successful choices, especially in competitive environments. The second one is the idea of mapping. What mapping means in reframing your model as one of a map rather than whatever the existing model you have is. Number three is margin for error. What does that mean? How to get it and why is it important? Number four is why the future is unknowable and how we should act with an unknowable future. And the fifth is how we can live to fight another day. So that's what our podcast is going to be about today. Let's get started. One. It's not going to be easy and it's not supposed to be easy. Throughout the book, Marx does a really nice job of referencing other people that had inspired his ideas and had caused him to think about things in one way versus another way. Uh, Nassim Taleb's work on uh, Fooled by Randomness is uh, the feature of a couple chapters and Taleb also gets a shout out in the introduction. But it was this quote by Munger that reminded me uh, that things aren't easy. This is what Marx noted, quote, it's not supposed to be easy. Anyone who finds it easy is stupid says Charlie Munger. Munger has said other places that it shouldn't be easy to make a decision that could change your financial life forever. So that is if you can make one or two incredible investments in your life, whether it's money or time or relationships, uh, that, that, that shouldn't be easy to make something that is going to change your life, that is going to be a real fork in the road for how things can come out. One way that it's not easy is to figure out investments. And uh, Marx encourages people to uh, embrace and use what he calls second-level thinking. Uh, To Marx, second-level thinking is, quote, deep, complex, and convoluted. It's trying to figure out what something is really, rather than what is your first reaction to something. Here's one example from the book. Quote, first-level thinking says it's a good company. Let's buy the stock. Stock. Second level thinking says it's a good company, but everyone thinks it's a great company and it's not. So the stock's overrated and overpriced. Let's sell, end quote. The reason that second level thinking is so difficult is because our brains are designed to be associators rather than dissociators. Our brains are designed in such a manner to find things that are similar rather than find things that are dissimilar. In the book Kluge by Gary Marcus, he explains how this was an evolutionary advantage. The reason we have brains like this is because it was advantageous at the time in our uh, neural development to have something that figured things out by association rather than disassociation. And so that's our first hurdle to get over is our natural biological uh, programmed way of thinking, one of association, and to figure out what is really behind this, what is the deeper answer. It's sort of like if you've ever been in a relationship, with someone and someone's mad at you, or you get mad at someone. It's usually not the first thing. It's not the um, post hoc ergo proctor hoc. After this, because of before this. It's it's the reason is is not the thing that immediately happened. It's a deeper reason. It's something more true. It's something that else that you have to figure out. Another reason that investing is hard is because of the moral hazard is gone with it. And Marx talks a lot in the book about how to evaluate risk. What, what is risk? Why is risk important? And how you control for it. And one of the hard things is the moral hazard that's associated with risk. Here's what Marx writes. The risk is gone myth is one of the most dangerous sources of risk. And the reason that is is because we think that we because we've controlled for something, we can... Um, be more risky with it. When uh, investigators and researchers and economists look at how people drive differently, whether or not they have a certain safety feature on their car than when they don't, people engage in more risky driving. People tend to engage in more risky driving when they think they are in a safer vehicle, when they think they're in a safer car. This was the subject of Greg Ipp's book Foolproof, where Ip talked about how um, different engineering structures for homes or towns would tried to change the way that flooding would occur. And as flooding failed to occur time and time again, people thought that this thing had been solved for, that flooding wasn't gonna be a problem because it had been engineered away. But that turned out not to be the case in many instances. But people still built their homes and businesses and they've invested money in certain developments because they thought the problem was solved because of this moral hazard that's associated when we think we have solved the problem. Another reason that this is not easy is that we are really bad at forecasting the chance and intensity of different occurrences. So if you think of what the odds of something are happening are and then you think of what the uh, severity of it is, uh, people tend not to be really good at forecasting. Philip Tatlock wrote a great book about how to improve your forecasting skills called Super Forecasting, and you can check that book out for more. I've also written a lot about forecasting on my blog, thewaiterspad.com. But this is another one of those areas where we just, we're just not that good at it, but we think we're good at it. It's sort of like the uh, study where uh, investigators went to the emergency room of a hospital, and they were interviewing people who had been in a car accident that they had been determined the cause of. And when these investigators said, Um, do you think you're an above average driver? Most of them said yes. Even though these were the people who had literally just caused accidents, they still believe they were uh, an above average driver. And we tend to believe we are above average forecasters because judging yourself rigorously on your forecasting skills is another thing that's hard. And that's why investing is hard is because a lot of this requires work. And it's not work that we tend to believe is valuable or we tend to Uh, do really well. Later in the book, Marx writes that there's no easy answer for any of these things. This is something else he says, quote, investors are always looking for it, but the silver bullet doesn't exist, end quote. A lot of the times you get into trouble if you're aiming for silver bullet thinking, if you think a single problem will solve, or if you think a single answer will solve the problem at hand. Ben Horowitz talks about this in his book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things, and Horowitz says that a real pivotal moment for his company was when one of his advisors talked to him and he said, there's no silver bullet solution for your servers running slow. This is a lead bullet problem. And that just means you need to drop a lot of lead on this thing to get it figured out. You need to break your big problem into manageable chunks and take them out one after another, after another, after another. And that's how you solve it. And that's how you do uh, good investing is that you realize that there's no silver bullet. There's no single event that is going to Uh, change and really make a difference in your life. It's more about the regularity. When Marx was writing about this, uh, about silver bullets not existing, it reminded me of some of the things that Angela Duckworth wrote about in the book A Grit. And uh, one of the big tenets of that book was that Consistency trumps intensity, so if you can consistently do good work every day, that's going to add up to more long-term results than if you intensely work on something once in a while, and that's true for Marx. Marx, uh, Marx is an elderly statesman of the investing world. He's been around a while. He's seen it all, much like Warren Buffett or Seth Klarman or Charlie Munger. These are all older people who have done the work. They've been consistent in their efforts, and that's part of the reason they had success. One final thing about um, investing not being easy is this idea of cocktail parties that Marx writes about, and he says that Anytime that you hear about a good idea at a cocktail party, it's no longer a good idea. The crux for an investor is that they find something that is more valuable than the market. You have to beat the market. And this is an idea that Warren Buffett espouses as well. When Buffett started his early partnership, one of his... Uh, big points of emphasis to his early investors what was that he had to do better than the market. If he didn't exceed the market by some percentage that he laid out ahead of time, then he told his investors, you should put your money in the market. You should buy an index fund. And Marx uh, expresses the same sentiment in this book. The value is... The, Im- the importance is in the value beyond the market. If you can't beat the market, then you're better off just buying a simple index fund and paying a handful of basis points and spending this investing time on something else. So anytime that you hear about an idea, whether it's at a cocktail party or a newspaper or a blog, or anytime it's out in the wild where many people can consider it and consume it and talk about it, y- That idea is probably oversold at that point. You're not getting the value. You're not getting in early enough on this idea. Which brings us back to where we started about this not being easy. If it was easy, you would listen to what your buddy says at the office or what your friend says on a run. And you would take that idea and you would put money after it or put time after it or you would invest in it in some other way. And it would come out rosy, but that's not what... uh, really valuable investments are. Really invaluable investments require second-level thinking where you try to dive into the heart of it. It requires putting aside things like moral hazard. It requires uh, doing a lot of lead bullet work and not hoping for a silver bullet to solve your problems. Investing is not easy. Two. I've recently started to rethink some of the models that I have in my own life. Things that I try to use as a backbone, use as a philosophy for life. And one of the ways I've tried to rethink models is anytime I see a linear model I try to think of what it would look like in a circular model or in a cycle. And that's an idea that I got from Howard Marks. And this is the idea of mapping. Mapping is a different way to look at models for our lives. It's this idea of knowing where you are, knowing what's around you, and figuring out where you want to go and how you want to get there. One of the maps that Marx uses is the idea of the efficient market hypothesis, which he doesn't entirely believe in, but he thinks there's value to it. This is what Marx writes, I do not believe the consensus view is necessarily correct. That means that while there might be parts of the efficient market hypothesis that are true. He doesn't believe that the markets are efficient all of the time. The great recent example of this was the mutual fund CUBA, which had a huge jump in value after the United States government announced people were allowed to travel to Cuba. Cuba, C-U-B-A, has nothing to do with the country. But there was an associated jump because people bought it because they thought that they were related in some way. And while they were loosely related, it didn't really have the efficient nature that the efficient market hypothesis would uh, would get, lend us to believe. Another way that Marx uses this idea of mapping is that with timing. You have to get your timing right. on uh, on a map to figure out when you should go somewhere. This is what he writes. Being too far ahead of your time is indistinguishable from being wrong. So if you get your timing wrong, if you're one half second too early, too late, you don't quite get it. And having bad timing is another way people make mistakes in this hard game that is investing. Marx writes, Sometimes we maximize our contribution by being discerning and relatively inactive. So that's the idea of waiting as part of timing. Sometimes timing isn't just action. Sometimes timing means to wait. This was a big idea for Warren Buffett as well. He said that one of the most influential books for him was Ted Williams' The Science of Hitting, where Williams wrote the secret to being a successful batter is to wait for the right pitch, and that's what Buffett does. He waits, and he waits, and he waits. This is what Marx is also expressing, that sometimes it's better to uh, just sit there and not do something. So we can redefine the map that we're using. Rather than maybe a topographical map, we'll use a uh, population map. Rather than use a population map, we'll use a uh, street map or an overhead map or any kind of map. And the map that Marx prefers for the markets is the map of cycles or pendulums. He goes back and forth between these two ideas in the book, but essentially they're the same. This is what he writes. I think it's essential to remember, remember that just about everything is cyclical. A little uh, later in the book he dives really deep into the idea of pendulums and the market swinging from one extreme to the other and this is what he says so at the extremes which are created by most people believe most people are wrong so again when we have this kind of a model we can start to think okay when the pendulum gets to the end most people believe it and most people will be wrong because that pendulum is about to reverse directions Uh, Another thing he adds to this is, accepting the broad concept of contrarianism is one thing, putting it into practice is another. So you can have these models, and these models can be true, and you can see the data to support these models, but it's hard to be different because you don't know how long you're going to be different. You can't explain to people sometimes why you're different. So it won't be easy to to be different about this. This part of the book really reminded me a lot of sports, and it reminded me of Bill Belichick, who I've been reading a lot about lately. And Belichick has had two experiences where he saw the pendulum, or the cycle of a quarterback coming to an end, and that was with Bernie Kosar in Cleveland and with Drew Bledsoe in New England. And in both of these cases, Bledsoe got rid of that quarterback before they really... Uh, degraded in quality. So when they were just on the rising end of the pendulum, before that pendulum was about to swing back. And it wasn't easy for him to do that in either situation. Uh, the Cleveland situation was an entire mess in and of itself, and releasing Kozar didn't help it matters at all. And then when he released Bledsoe, Bledsoe had a few uh, pretty good years left in him, and uh, people didn't necessarily believe in New England that That was always the right decision, even though Tom Brady had had a huge amount of success as replacing Bledsoe. So it's not easy to do these things, but if you can get the timing right, if you have the right kind of a model that um, a player is going to regress or an investment is going to turn around, whether to rise instead of uh, the continuous falling or to end the rising and begin the fall. So if you can get the right model, if you can get the right map to view things uh, through that lens of it can be really valuable. Marx believes in this so, well, so much, he writes, we'd better have a good idea where we are. And that's a pretty strong endorsement of the idea of mapping, or cycles, or pendulums, which are all very similar models to view the world through. Three Margin for error. It's another big part of Marx's book, and that's why we're looking at it in this podcast. And um, margin for error, figuring out margin for error is a tricky thing because you don't know what the future is going to hold, which we'll get to in the next point. So how do you figure out something where there's a value that you don't know? There's an unknown variable. This is what Marx, uh, Marx says about why it's important to figure out margin for error. For me, an accurate estimate of value is the indispensable starting point. So it's to figure out what the intrinsic value of something is. What are the assets? What are the liabilities? What are the the debts and the payouts and the order being paid and so forth and so on? And the analogy, the visual that Marx uses is that you don't want to be a six-foot man who drowns in five feet of water. You want to be able to simply stand up. And if you can buy something at 90, but you think it's worth 100, it's even better if you buy it at 80 or if you buy it at 70 or 50 or so far uh, down the line. He said, and there's reasons to look for margin of error and for signals when there's not a lot of margin of margin for error available. One of those is the seven scariest words in investing. And that's too much money chasing too few assets. And that's a situation where the price of something is getting bid up because there isn't a lot of other options there. So after you figure out the value, after you figure out where you are on the map, after you look and see what other people are doing, seeing if there's too much money or not enough, this is what Mark says. There's no such thing as a good or bad idea regardless of price. And he says a little later on. Well bought is half sold. So what you want is you want some value of the thing and then you want some price that you expect of the thing and then if you can get a great difference between the value and the price you'll have something that is worth holding on to if you can get something of medium value at a low price or something of high value at a medium price that's good and the larger the gap you have between those things the better off you'll be but it'll also be harder to find those things So how do you find those things? Mark suggests you look where other people aren't. This is what he writes. The best opportunities are usually found among things most others won't do. What does that mean? That means that Apple and Tesla and any other thing that you hear on the news or like we talked about before, at a cocktail party or by the water cooler or on a run with your friend are probably not going to be the places where there's a large margin for error. I can't remember which gambler I was listening to, but I think it was one of the ones that Bill Simmons had on his podcast. And Simmons was talking to this guy about betting on uh, NBA basketball games. And the guy said that, yeah, he still bets some, but it wasn't quite like he did before. And Simmons was asking whether or not it's too hard to win any money gambling on the NBA anymore. And the guy, he kind of agreed with him. He said he had to really pick his spots for where he put his money down. But he said that if he wanted to really hustle and grind and to make an, an everyday living from betting on basketball every day. He would find some smaller out-of-the-way conference and he would bet on those games because as Marx just said, The best opportunities are usually found among things most others won't do. So most people will go and they will bet the NBA and they will watch the NBA. But there's not a lot of people who are going down to small-time college basketball that are putting a lot of money down and trying to earn a living that way. Margin for error is really valuable because the future is unknowable. Four. Marx writes that much of risk is subjective hidden unquantifiable and all of that risk exists in the future so any kind of investment that you're making whether it's to buy a stock or to create a relationship or to start a business or to spend time on this thing it's all unknowable at the beginning One of my friends was telling me about one of his business experiences and he said that, yeah, I had everything planned out except for uh, these two contingency things. And even though he knew ahead of time that these two contingencies were something that could um, end his business, he he still fell for these two contingencies. They still came up and they bit him in the ass. And uh, part of the problem is is that it's hard to know that's exactly what's going to happen I'm sure if you had given my friend a crystal ball, he may have taken different actions. But the future is really unknowable, even if we have a good idea, a good inclination about what might happen. Part of the problem here is that we are horrible at figuring out what the data for these situations are. And this gets into the idea of alternative histories that Nassim Taleb writes about. Um, And then um, on the blog, The Waiters Pad, we call these possible outcomes. This is what Mark says about them. Risk may have been present even though loss didn't occur. And then uh, he says, I have a limited opinion of forecasters and those who resolutely believe in them. Marx also wrote, The truth is, much in investing is ruled by luck. So what we have here is this idea of many possible outcomes. Think think of it as the trunk of a tree. That's where you start at from your decision right now. So imagine the thing that you need to decide on. And there's many outcomes from your main decision, just like there are many branches that go off the trunk of the tree. So let's say that your decision resides on the second branch from the bottom. So you go up to the second branch and then you continue down that. You face another fork in the branch, which is another decision you have to make. And eventually you end up at the end where the buds are. Well, we tend to only consider where that bud is or the twig we're on or the branch that we started from. Very rarely do we consider the entire spectrum of that tree of the trunk and all the other branches and all the other outcomes that could have happened. That's really hard to do, and like this podcast started, it's not easy. One way that we fail to do this, one mistake that we make when considering all of these possible outcomes is something called attribution substitution. This is an idea I got from Philip Tetlock, author of the book Superforecasting I mentioned earlier. Attribution substitution is when we take a problem that's really hard and we substitute one set of data or one question for another, because it's easier to answer. So as I was reading this section that Marx wrote, I was thinking this is attribution substitution. When people look at the profits of an investor rather than the process of an investor, that's how they're figuring out if someone is good or not. And profits are a really poor attribute to judge someone by. Oren Hoffman said about investing in Silicon Valley in the 1990s was, easy that anybody could have made money. And when someone asked him his advice about it, he said, don't take my advice. Everybody who was in a situation where I was made money. Warren Buffett calls us ducks on a rising pond. We've mentioned it other ways, like having a tailwind, running downhill, or any number of different analogies. But the point is, is that in a bull market, it's really hard to figure out whether or not you have a good strategy, because everyone tends to do well in a bull market. So people will look at the outcomes of a bull market and say, oh, that guy or that lady had really good outcomes, she must be a really good investor. Instead of this, we should focus on their process, or how How good of an investor were they during the down years? And this is something Marx talks about a lot in his book, is this idea of risk, and that sometimes it's worth not having the same amount of gains if you can have losses that are a lot smaller. Much of the future is unknowable. So much of the future is unknowable. But there are things that are very knowable, and Marx encourages us to find those things. Find the... Things that are really rooted in fact find the numbers find the data find the historical things that have happened find the experiences find the base rates find all of those things that you can know and you can measure and there won't be a lot of them so they won't be too hard to find but there will be things that are concrete rock solid and it is your job to figure out what those are whether that's in your relationships, or in your business investments, or in your time investments. One way to do this is to think about um, how you invest your time. And something that people have said pays every time is reading. I'm a huge fan of reading books. I've been on this reading book kick for the last four years where I read more than a book a week. That would have been crazy. If you would have told me when my daughter was first born eight years ago that I would be reading more than a book a week, I would have laughed at you. I wouldn't have thought it was possible. But reading always pays. Reading is an investment you can always do that always pays. And there are things like this. There are things that we can know. Things that we we are sure of that will pay off and that are high value. And Mark says find those things and do those. Don't fall for attribution substitution. Don't think you know the future just because one outcome came over another. When there is a whole tree of buds that represent possible outcomes. And... Don't forget about the role of luck as it applies to many, many things in life. Six. Marx wrote, If we avoid the losers, the winners will take care of themselves. Marx uses a book about tennis as an example for this. And in this book, the author says that the professionals in tennis hit winners but the best amateurs avoid losers. And what that means is that you can force someone else to make mistakes. You can play until the other person makes a mistake and you can win that way. You don't have to hit winners. When, when Marx wrote this and used the ta- the tennis analogy, it reminded me of one winter my wife and I played table tennis and my wife ended up being up 20 or so games on me by the time winter was over. And <laughs> During the, my losing streak, I was wondering why she was so much better than me. Because I had developed some spin shots, I could hit topspin, backspin, uh, left spin, right spin. My, I could really move the ball uh, in a certain way. But I would always lose to her because my wife just avoided hitting losers. And because I was hitting these shots with spin on them, they would fly off the table, they would hit the net, and so forth and so on. Whereas my wife would hit these consistent winners right down the middle of the table that I would tend to mess up. Charlie Munger likes to say that the best way to be smart is to avoid being stupid. And so if we can avoid these things that will blow us up, if we can avoid these things that really cause problems, if we can avoid these things that will kill us, we'll be in better shape for it. The idea of a Pyrrhic victory, is one that costs so much to win that you end up losing the war. And the opposite of this is called the Fabian strategy, where where you, um, you, you block, 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 and you try to wear out your opponent through a war of attrition, or timing, or seizing your spots. And that's what Marx is encouraging us to do in our investments with money, or time, or relationships. And that's to live to fight another day. Just don't blow it up. Don't die on this hill. Don't lose the war because you won the battle. Marx's book was really good. I don't know if it'll be one of my favorite books of the year as our 2016 is starting to draw to a close but it was definitely one I'm glad I read. One thing that investors tend to do really well is articulate their thoughts in a way that people can apply them into non-investing domains, and vice versa for some of the investors that I follow online. For Marx's book, it was five clear things that I shared in this podcast. One, it's not easy, and it's not supposed to be easy. To get outsized returns and anything in life requires you to do things that other people won't or can't or aren't willing to do. Two, mapping in cycles and pendulums is a different kind of model and one that might work better in many situations. Three, a margin for error is very valuable because, four, the future is unknowable. And five, if you can live to fight another day, you will get another chance to take a crack at this crazy, mysterious, complex thing we call life. Thanks for listening to episode 39 of Mike's Notes. much now why don't you make like a tree and get out of here it's leave you idiot make like a tree and leave you sound like a damn fool when you say it wrong all right then leave and take your book with you